relating to you an experience that I had when I was in sixth grade. I don't remember a whole lot back in those days, but I do remember this one particular year in my elementary school life. I'd had a difficult first five years. Don't you laugh, Mom. It was uh, difficult in the sense that uh, socially it seemed hard to adjust. Academically, I was sort of lazy. And it just seemed like those years went by without accomplishing a whole lot. Then when I got to sixth grade, there began to seem to be some signs of life. Showed some real promise. Had a real good teacher who took an interest in me and uh, had a leading role in a school play and some things like that. And it really looked super neat. But toward the end of the year, things begin to sour. And it sort of reverted back to some of the old ways and the old, the old arch. I remember the last day of school in sixth grade, I got a note from a person whom I respected, a classmate. And they'd left this note on the seat of the car. And the note said, I'm so disappointed in you. You showed so much promise of being a really neat person. What happened? Well, that crushed me. It bothered me all summer long. Since committing my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, I've enjoyed many exciting years of walking with the Lord. I can go back to those moments in my life in which He guided me through some very difficult waters. I've seen miracles, what I believe are miracles, and I believe definitely in miracles. I don't have the gift of miracles, but I believe that God can perform miracles. There are many times when I have felt God's power at work through me, leading me to others, that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be shared and that God may bring them to Christ through me. I've seen Him strengthen lives through the ministry He's given me. I've enjoyed His ministry of teaching me so much from the Word of God. And I could go on and on. But just one fear continually has haunted me through my life as a Christian. And it comes up every so often when I begin to sort of drift away. And that is that my God and Savior would send me a note. And the note would say, I know your works, that you have a name that you livest, yet you are dead. I fear that kind of note from God. Shall we pray together? Our gracious God and Father, we humbly admit that we have nothing at all to offer you in the way of power or strength to accomplish those things that would please you. But our Father, we have confidence that you are at work within us both to will and to work for your own good pleasure. We stand in fear and trembling, anticipating, Father, that truly you will accomplish great things through us. And yet, Father, we pray that 
we would not lose sight of your power, your ministry in our life, and become dead. Nothing but a, a lifeless form of a Christian. Minister to our hearts today as we study your word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Death is the final tragedy of life. But there is a sadder tragedy than death. It's the tragedy of giving every appearance of being alive and being vibrant and being strong, and yet in reality of actually being dead, crumbling, decaying, and in the process of eventual ruin. Our Lord accused the Pharisees, and He says, You're nothing more than whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Thirty miles southeast of Thyatira. As you walked across the range of mountains, you would come upon a fertile valley. And peering across the valley, you would see a city rising 1,000 feet above the floor of the valley. On a steep precipice of a mountain, where the walls were so sheer, it gave a very imposing, commanding sight seemingly impregnable. Certainly no conqueror could defeat that city because it seemed so unreachable. No city had a more splendid past. As the ancient capital of Lydia, Sardis was the richest and most glorious of all the ancient cities, ruled by great kings, filled with magnificent temples, but as one crossed the valley and moved closer to the, the great mountain on which the city sat, another picture began to develop. Instead of a city standing on a mountain of granite, this was a city that was built on a mountain of mud, a mountain of slightly compacted conglomerate, always eroding and never trustworthy. As you walked into the city, you were completely overwhelmed, thinking that you would see the glories of the past, but instead finding the influence of that city had eroded. The riches were gone. The kings had been defeated. The city lay basically in decay and ruin in comparison to what it once was. Sardis was a city of failure, a city that never got it together, even though it showed such great promise. It was a city of pretense. From a distance it gave one impression, but when you really got into the heart of the city, you found that it was actually in the process of decaying and ruin. In the midst of Sardis, there was a church. And when men looked at the church, they thought of it as being a very great church. It was well known. You could ask any non-Christian on the street in Sardis, and they would have told you where the Christian church was. It was a continually active church. It was a going concern. It was a fast-growing church, taking in members daily. It was always doing something. It was an orthodox church. 
It was recommended by the pastors of other areas. If you're going into Asia Minor, don't forget about the church at Sardis. That's the church to go to. That's where they preach doctrine and the orthodox convictions of the faith. In every way, the church at Sardis was a model church. But when God saw into the church, into the heart of the church at Sardis, He saw a church that resembled a, the city where it was located. It was a church that was a sham. It was a church of pretense. It was a church of spiritual failure. It was a church that, although it showed great promise at one time, it never got it together. And to this church, God wrote a letter. We read about that church in the letter found in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I invite you to turn in your Bibles. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know the hour in which I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, for, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The church at Sardis was a church who had a reputation. Jesus said, I know your works, and that you have a reputation that you live. The fact that this church was so engrossed in activity gave everyone the impression that it was a super alive church. It was highly organized and developed. Almost every night of the week they had something going on. They gathered regularly on the first day of the week. They wouldn't think of missing church. They observed the ordinances of the church. They contributed systematically to the needs of the saints. They prayed frequently. They gave attention to the apostles' doctrine in an effort to formulate their beliefs and convictions. They appreciated good preaching and teaching. When it came to a church, they had everything possible that men could want. Yet the Lord continues, and thou art dead. Thou art dead. When the great physician of the universe put his thumb over the pulse of that church, he said, I pronounce you dead. There's no life moving through this corpse of a church. Nothing in Sardis could satisfy the heart of Christ. When something dies, the real tragedy is that that person who has died can no longer respond to those who are alive. 
No longer can that person show love. No longer can that person respond and meet needs and lives because that person's dead. And what Christ was saying is that this church is dead in the sense that it is able to do nothing that satisfies my heart. Now, in what sense was this church dead? Were they involved in the wrong activities or too many activities? Not at all. May I underline that? It wasn't that they had too many activities, and it was not that they were involved in activities. The real problem with the church is found in the latter part of verse 2. For I have not found thy works perfect or complete or fulfilled before God. There was great promise in the church at Sardis, but there was no real fulfillment of those promises before God. There was prayer, but they didn't reach heaven's door. There were new members, but no new disciples. There was love for orthodoxy, but no love for the truth. There was great preaching, but no change of heart. There was singing, but there was no heartfelt praise to God. There was gifts of money, but no gifts of life. Big plans, elaborate schemes, multitude of programs. And yet, as far as the Lord is concerned, the church was dead. All of these things were offering nothing in the way of satisfaction to his heart. But not all hope is lost. For we read in verse 2, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 2. He doesn't say, quit your activity. He doesn't say, quit doing the things you're doing. That's not the commandment. He says, fulfill those activities before me. They bring no joy to my heart, no pleasure, because they're at the point of death. Strengthen them. That is, do what is necessary to fulfill them before God. Put into them, and here's the crux of the whole thing, put into those activities that which is acceptable to God. Put into those activities that which is acceptable to God. Go to church, yes, but go to meet God. Worship, but worship in spirit and in truth. Give, but give ourselves along with our money. Pray, but don't regard iniquity in our heart. Sing, but sing with the heart. Preach, but obey. Study, but study to show thyself approved. Forms aren't wrong. There's always a lot of criticism, of formalism. The problem is, in Scripture, is that it's not the form that's wrong. It's the fact that there's nothing in the form that makes it wrong. There's no heart. There's no feeling. There's no love. There's no life. There's nothing that is satisfactory to God. And God is saying, don't be satisfied with the externals. Get down to the real nitty-gritty of Christian life. And that is the internals. One church may differ from another church in terms of the forms, but the life should be the same.
But as you go about strengthening these things, you need to keep in mind one thing. Verse 3. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Remember. What does he mean? He means let your mind travel back through history to a point in your experience. And the point that your mind is to go back to is that moment in which you received the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which you heard that Christ died for your sins and you believed at that moment. Go back to that moment. Why? I thought about this. Why aren't we to go back to other points? Because it's at that moment that probably more than any other time in a Christian's life, he's going to be more aware of something And that something is found in another passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with the excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest or stand on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. My preaching unto you is in the demonstration of the Spirit and His power. At the point that we become a believer in Christ, we are super sensitive to the power of God that is able to bring new life within our hearts and deliver us from the power of failure and sin. The apostle says, let your mind go back to that point. Go back to when you became a Christian. Go back to when you heard the gospel and think about how you heard it. Think about the power of God that was at work. Remember the demonstration of God's Spirit and His power. From the very beginning of creation, God has made man to hold as a capacity, equipped him with a spirit. And man's spirit was so designed that God could insert his spirit and give life to that man. Whenever man, when God took his spirit out of man, all men then are born, in, are born dead in trespasses and sins. But that's not the way God wants it. It's like a glove. Our life is like a glove. And God wants to insert his spirit that he might make that glove of our life come alive with his power, with his character with the fruits that we call the fruit of the Spirit. It is only when man's life is so filled that man can do the things that please God. Otherwise, man just goes through the motions. For that glove without the Spirit to offer up praise to God is just going through the motions. For that life to do something for God without being full of the Spirit of God is to go through the motions. God told Zerubbabel, who would rebuild the temple, he said, don't do it by might nor by power, that is your power or your strength, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Jesus told a woman at the well of Samaria, he said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
There's no way that our life and our activity can satisfy God or please His heart unless it's full of spiritual activity brought on by the Holy Spirit of God. It's interesting how the Lord Jesus Christ begins this letter. And if you'll notice, each title that He refers to Himself is always a reference in some way to the church. And He says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis, verse 1, write, these things saith he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, he comes with the seven stars, which we read in Scripture are the seven messengers to the seven churches. They bring the message of truth. And he says, I come with a message of truth that will unmask your hypocrisy. But I also come with something else. I come with the seven spirits. Now, if we go back to Revelation chapter 1, we'll find that the seven spirits are located between are found between verse, in verse 4 between the Father and the Son. And thus the seven spirits is obviously a reference to the completion or fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to His sevenfold ministry. Isaiah brings this out when he talks about the spirit of wisdom and counsel and so forth. When Jesus says, He that hath the seven spirits of God, He's saying, I am the one who has the Holy Spirit who is able to minister to you in manifold ways. I have the fullness of the Spirit, and I'm able to give that to you. But as long as you persist to do things in your own flesh and in your own strength, you will be dead. So he says, hold fast. Verse 3, repent, or pardon me, remember, go back to that moment in which you realized that the Holy Spirit of God was empowering your heart and your life. And then hold fast, and the word hold fast means keep your eye on it. It's as if that point in history of our life is a significant point in God's calendar for us. And he's saying, let your eyes always go back to that point. Follow that point. And repent. And the word repent means to change your heart. Change your heart. You are looking to fill man's activities to God by man's best efforts. You're going to church and you're praying and you're Bible studying. All that was an attempt on your heart to do your very best. He's saying, change your mind about going about these things in that way. Go back and realize that they must be done in the Spirit and in truth. When men fill their activities for God with persuasive words or intellectual arguments, or man's wisdom, or fortitude, or determination, or special abilities and talents. When man goes at accomplishing God's work and God's activities in that way, those activities will be unacceptable to God, and that man will be dead as far as God is concerned. Sardis was that kind of church, full of that kind of people. They were all the time trying to accomplish things in the flesh. They were trying to persuade people into the kingdom of God. They were trying to be intellectual in their pursuit of doctrine. They were trying to look to special abilities and talents to get them through where they were obviously in lack of spiritual power. But the church in first century called Sardis, the Lord miraculously and supernaturally picked out that church for some other purpose. And as we've been studying the book of Revelation, the church of Sardis was God's picture 
a prophetic picture of a certain period in the history of the church. The church of Sardis was more than just a first century church. It was a first century illustration of a 15th century church. The church of Sardis was a church that pictured the Protestant Reformation. The word Sardis means escaping ones or the ones who came out or come out. I think it's very graphic of the thought that the reformers came out of Thyatira. They came out of the Roman system with all of its abominations. And they began a reformation. A reformation which, to be honest with you, has next to the New Testament era, no period in the history of mankind, I think, has affected more people and more lives than the Protestant Reformation. I believe it was the greatest event in history after... We've come on an organization that is called PAO, Professional Athletes Outreach, which is a ministry of the professional athletes. It began quite a number of years ago in Phoenix, Arizona, started by artist priests. And each year it's growing because professional athletes have come to the conclusion that there's more to life than football on Sunday afternoon. PAO takes young Christians, Christian athletes and their wives and trains them how to share their faith in their community and how to share their faith with their families and how to live the life of a Christian. The evidence of PAO's efforts stands before you as basically a shy, introverted young man can stand before you and tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. But I am not the exception. I am the rule. For there are so many of my colleagues who have come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. And right now, they are spreading the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the NFL. Young men such as John Hanna, who is an all-pro offensive guard for the New England Patriots. Jeff Seaman, who is an all-pro linebacker for the Minnesota Vikings. Jackie Ray Slater, who is all-conference player for the LA Rams, and so on and so on. Ladies and gentlemen, Christianity, Jesus Christ is moving in the NFL. And I'd like to tell you about a strange uh, belief that is, is beginning out here in society. You may ask yourself, well, why professional athletes? Why bring them to the uh, Montana area? Well, I'd just like you to know that there are problems that our youth are facing today. And the strange part about it is that they do not respond to everyone. But there is a response to a professional athlete, not by virtue of who he is, but by virtue of what he does. The youth of America have placed professional people, movie stars, on a pedestal that is somewhat undeserving. They believe that if a professional athlete says it, then by all means it must be true. And it's sad to say. But if Jesus Christ can use that as a vehicle to get to these young people and save a soul, then it's all worthwhile. You know, I tell the young people that 
it's really unjust that you should look at a professional athlete who you really don't know and place more validity on what he says than what your parents say or what your teachers say or what the clergy says. Because for the most part, we as professional athletes have no personal contact with any of you. And if there's anyone who should be looked up to as a hero or placed on a pedestal, it should be your parents who love you so very, very much, who are with you day after day. It should be the teachers who spend so much time with you day after day in, in, in the educational institutions. It should be the clergymen who have dedicated their life to working for Jesus Christ. And I don't know about the vast majority of you, but the only person that should be a hero in here today should be Jesus Christ because he gave his all for all of us. In conclusion, I'd just like to say that even though my origin began in Greenville, South Carolina, and even though now I live in Vacaville, California, it's a comfort to know that I have sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ here in Bozeman, Montana. And that as I depart this morning, I would ask you not to, to brag or boast that there was a professional football player who came to your church today, but simply rejoice in the fact that a fellow Christian came to share with you who just happened to be a professional football player. God bless you all. I love you with the power of Jesus Christ. And could we please close with a word of prayer. Dear gracious and powerful Heavenly Father, we come to you right now in a moment of thanksgiving, thankful for the blessings that we receive throughout our lives, dear Lord, blessings that are too numerous for us to count, blessings that all of us are not deserving of. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, dear Lord, for giving us the opportunity to achieve eternal life. Right now, dear Lord, if there's any of, among the congregation that do not know you, we pray that they open their hearts. If there are any among the congregation that have problems too big for them to handle, we ask that they bring them to you right now. If there are any among the congregation who would like to make a stand for Jesus Christ, we ask that they come forward this day. For it says in your word that tomorrow is promised to no man. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. And this could very well be our last opportunity to become a member of the royal family of Jesus Christ. We thank you for living in a country where we can worship and love you. We thank you, dear Lord, for our pastor here today who brings us the word, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for the Christian friends that we have and that we have formed new relationships with here in Montana. Bless them all, dear Lord. Guide them and love them. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.
have heard a word of encouragement from a brother in Jesus Christ who came to us today to pour out his heart as to what God has been doing in his life and most of all of the great salvation that he's experienced through Jesus Christ. Mama may have it, Papa may have it, but God's child must have his own. My friend today, George Martin has challenged each one of us to ask that question. If we desire to be a child of God, and to be enriched, to be fulfilled in life as one of his children, do we have it? Is it ours? If it's not, then God offers us a way to have it. He doesn't say, come to church, read our Bible, do the good things that Christians do. He says, come to my son. Accept him as your personal Savior and Lord. Put all your faith in him from the depth of your heart, and I'll give you eternal life. And that everything that follows from that is like a P.S. to God, saying, God, thank you. That's why I go to church. That's why I read my Bible. That's why I pray. God, thank you for the life I have in Christ. Today, if you have not invited Christ into your life, we invite you to do that at this very moment, right where you're seated. Just to bow in your, your head, in the quietness of your heart. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of, of trying to do it on my own. I want Christ in my life. Invite him in. I accept you as my personal Savior. I invite you to be my God to save me from my sins. And if you'll do that in the quietness of your heart, God makes a promise. Not myself or George Martin, but God makes a promise. He says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, on Jesus Christ, shall have eternal life. Have you believed? In our church, we like to give opportunity for people to make public their faith in Christ. If it's been just a moment ago that you've made this decision, we invite you to come and stand before the church and say, I'm following Christ. I want to confess him before others, that they might be encouraged by my faith, that I might plant my feet publicly before Christ on the solid rock. If you've made this decision last month or last year and you've never made it public before, you've never come before a congregation and said, I have, I'm a follower of Christ, we invite you to do it. Christ wants us to make known before others our stand for him. We're going to invite the congregation to stand and sing a hymn of invitation, 464 in their hymnal. And as we sing this hymn together, I'm going to come down in front of the church and we invite friends to come forth as God leads. You come. Join me here at the front of this church and stand for your Savior. Will you join me? Stand and sing, Out of My Bondage.